Women in Architecture, a podcast by SB Architects. I'm your host, Jeanette Hoffman. Throughout this series, I'll be delving deeper into what it means to be a woman in architecture. Today's guest is Annette Fisher, co-chair at Union Limited and CEO of FA Global. Annette is a renowned British-Nigerian architect, CEO of FA Global, and founder and co-chair of Union, a consortium of female-led architectural practices. She is also an accomplished author, having written the popular guidebook, Oyenbo, A Foreigner's Guide to Living in Lagos. Annette is a champion for women and diversity in the field of architecture. She chairs the Let's Build a Televised Forum, which aims to promote a greater diversity in practice. Annette has had a distinguished career. Having previously served as vice president of RIBA, she was both the first black woman elected to RIBA council in 1999 and RIBA nominated presidential candidate in 2002. She is also a trustee of the Commonwealth Association of Architects and currently serves as a professional part-time RIBA Part 3 tutor at Westminster University in London. Annette, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk a little bit about how you got started in architecture, sort of what attracted you to our profession, and um, a little bit about yourself. We'd just like to hear about you. I was born in the UK, but I was raised in Nigeria, where I'm originally from, because my, my father, my parents were studying well, my father, yeah, they both were studying here and they met here and got married here. And then um, my father's a civil engineer and my mother's was a nurse at the time. And um, then they went back to Nigeria and so I was raised there. And I came I came back here um, to finish A-levels uh, before I started university. But whilst I was at um, secondary school, um, I think my parents um, sort of had saw that I was quite good at both the sciences and art because art was my fine art drawing and painting was one of my favorite subjects. But I was also good at maths and my maths and physics. I did maths and physics very levels. And so um, they initially introduced me to a practice, uh, a local practice um, as a student. So I sort of did coffee, you know, served coffee you know, to the architects. And that was my uh, first introduction to an architect's office. And I, and I think I was quite, um, I was taken, taken aback by all the wonderful drawings they, they were doing. And, and, you know, that was my, that was my initiation, if you like. And um, I don't think that I was at that point harbored a, 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 a very strong desire, but I was definitely quite enthralled um, um, I thought this was quite a magical thing, you know, how people produce these drawings, which become buildings. I mean, how on earth did that happen? And then when I finished my levels, I'd applied to a number of universities. I got two of my top choices, which were both Bath University and Strathclyde University in Glasgow. Um, and I chose to go to Bath because my I, my brother was in the UK at the time and I didn't want to be that far away and up all the way up in Scotland. So I did my first year at Bath. I, I guess that um, that's when I realised that I did enjoy it. Um, and the Bath School was an interesting course because it combined architecture and engineering and they had a building oh, engineering course, um, which Ted Happold, late Ted Happold, had um, pioneered because he strongly believed that to get the best buildings, you want engineers and architects working closely together, um, which I personally still believe is true. Um, and 
you know, I think if I remember my first year, there were eight women in the class out of a class of 40. I think at the end of the first term, there were four. <laughs> and yep. I think by the end of the second term, I think uh, there were two. And I was one of the two that then left because I left after my first year and I went <laughs> staff Clyde and continued in my second year there. And I finished architecture there. And so that's how I got into architecture. Um, and I think when I started the course and I thought, oh, my God, seven years. And I just said, well, you know what? I'm just going to take a year at a time. And before you know where you are, actually, the time does fly. And it's, you know, you're at the end. So, yeah, so that's how I got into architecture. I like that. That's exciting because I can relate. I, my family wasn't in architecture. You know, in, my dad had an engineering mind, but my mom was a doctor. So sort of similar to your dynamic. Mm. So uh, when I brought up architecture, it was a little bit out of the out of the norm, I guess you yeah. could say. So yeah. I was sort of taking it on by myself a little bit how you did and just um, intrigued by what architecture was mm. and didn't see a lot of women there. But I think if anything, that sort of attracted to me to it. Right. I think if it's the path less taken, I'm yeah. going to probably go that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what made you switch from Bath to Strathclyde? Was there anything particular or you just wanted to change environments? Well, my parents had friends there and um, they just said, you look, you know, we'd rather you you were in a location where there were people we knew nearby. And that was the only reason. So mm -hmm. I just and I contacted them and they said, yeah, come, you know, there was no issue because I had already, you know, uh, was had already qualified to go in in the first place. I just hadn't chosen it in the first instance. So um, that was the only reason. Um, and but actually, I, it was a, it was great because the guys that I mean, it was still a, a, a male dominated class and, you know, course, because I don't think I had ever had a female um, lecturer. I think they were always men, always white. I think in my year, we when I started in the second year, I think there might have been two or three girls. And when I finished, I think it wasn't the same girl who finished with me finally, I think. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I have to say that I often think to myself, if I had realized that university was going to be a microcosm of my world, I wonder if I would have yes. um, made different decisions, you know, because in truth, in, in practice, that has been my world as well. I mean, it hasn't changed from that, which is, you know, somewhat, right, we're a bit, you know, we're a bit too young and naive to realize that it's it's pretty much paralleling what our, our world is about to be, right? Yeah. And you're just thinking, oh, here's a couple of girls. I guess a lot of people aren't taking my course this year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't think exactly that. Excuse me, when you leave here, you know. <laughs> oh, this is how it is out there as well? Interesting. Never thought of that. <laughs> so did you feel any sort of, as a female in architecture, as a, a Black female in architecture, did you feel any sort of discouragement throughout school or, you know, through with a professor or not with a professor, with someone else sort of um, giving you a look like you shouldn't be here? Well, I don't think it's a difficult one to answer in the sense. Mm -hmm. sense. I mean, I think that um, when I started the course um, and especially when I went to have Clyde, I think I've always had a very strong sense of self. So I think that even if anybody had given me that kind of, um, I don't know, um, reaction, my it was my choice. I chose to be there. So as far as I was concerned, I chose to be there. This was something, you know, failure is not a, 
uh, um, a conversation we have in our family, in my family. I come from a family of, you know, strong professionals and entrepreneurs and, you know, I was there to do a course and I was there to do it and finish and complete it, you know, and there was no question that I should, that I would do it. The only issue was how good a mark would I get, right? <laughs> it wasn't whether or not I would finish, you know, was I going to get a first or a second or, I mean, that was the only thing I would be in my, you know, and I'm certain that there would have been times that there, there, there would have been some discouragement. And I think I do remember when I got my first degree, I, I was, I think I got a 2-2 and I was scheduled for a 2-1 and I was very disappointed by that. And um, and I remember going to see the sort of lectures because all my, my all my because, you know, you get marked both by the exam and, and by your projects and all my projects had had, had high marks. So um, I'm, I remember at that point being very pissed off about that and going to see the lecturer and saying, well, why isn't my mark higher? Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and you know, I didn't. I don't think I got a particularly satisfactory response, but um, I think that's the only time that I remember thinking to myself, "Hmm, you know, I'm not sure that I, I felt unfairly treated at that point." I did. I did feel, um, but you know, it's you know, it's not what you learn. You learn very quickly that actually, it's not the degree that you get that matters. It's what you do with it. Absolutely. Um, and so, um, yeah, but I loved, I loved it. I mean, the guys were great. My guy, my, you know, I have yeah. very fond memories of my course. We used to have a trip every year to somewhere in Europe and we'd all, we, and they, you know, they'd always take us on the cheapest route, which was coach and then the, the ferry to Europe and we'd go and see buildings and, and these guys, they were my brothers, you know, they were, they, cause I grew up with brothers. So maybe that's why, but you know, they they looked after us. Um, uh, you know, we go out and have a lot of fun. And some people would get drunk, and some wouldn't, and and everybody would get home safe. And it was just, I mean, I don't, I have very fond rem memories of, of Glasgow and Scotland and being and studying there. And of course, the Scots are great, very warm. They're the, they're amazing. <laughs> I, I will stand by. I think they're still some of the friendliest people I ever was around. I'm from the deep south and I always kept saying they have this sort of southern hospitality so it reminded me of home the yes. Scots would come out of their house and just be like oh did you need something I'll show you yes. where to go it was just like like you were their family immediately um but I do I think that just hearing you talk about it the sort of innate confidence you had and maybe even like you said growing up with brothers you know though some of those things happen subtly and maybe we're not even noticing them um mm. but having the confidence to be like, well, you know, I'm moving on. You're not going to, it's not going to stop you. It's not going to, it's not going to discourage you from what you were there to do. Your job was to get your degree. And um, I appreciate that sometimes. Yeah. We need to be aware of sort of the things around us that might be discouraging, but sometimes um, it's like ignoring the bullies remarks, right? If you ignore them, then you're not giving them life. And so if something happens that we start to believe is, um, unfair treatment there's a time to speak up but then I think the other side of it is too is there's a time to go oh that's all you got you know I'm moving on, I'm moving on. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm here and to do quite, my job <laughs> yeah and what was quite interesting for me though I should just share this is because um sure. what in the final um yeah you know because um I don't know if it's the same when you study but uh, you do you do a first degree you do a year out and I spent mm -hmm. that year, and then you come back and you do your final thesis, which is you know on a on a project that you choose, um, and then we have the then you would have the external examiners come to mark 
um, the work, you know, for, so visiting professors, lecturers from other universities will come and, you know, you have, you stay up all night, put up all your work and everything like that. And what was most incredible was when I, when it came to the final, the external examiner, um, and I remember standing by my work and who should walk up to me, but Ted Happold, you know, oh my, my former, yeah, my former, um, one of my former lecturers and and he remembered me you know um you know I was quite surprised because I shouldn't have been because I was the only black girl in that uh, but that's still six years later you know if you think about it six yeah. years later um and he said I always wondered what happened to you and I'm so glad you finished you know <laughs> I remember him saying that to me you know and uh you know he was just so horrible you know, this lady had left, left left architecture but had had carried on um, so that was a real treat. Um, I have to, uh, when I remember that, yeah. That's amazing. He's he happy to see you continued. He's like, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and he was actually somebody that through my career, um, from time to time, he always gave me support, said Happold. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that may come out in, you know. You really time. realize, you remember those professors, those professors that started to feel like family. And no matter what you felt like, they just had your back and they had, they wanted the best for you and they were willing to have those sort of tough conversations with you too. But um, man, they, like you said, they just stand out to you and, and have the best memories of the professors that really supported you no matter what. Yeah. 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 yeah no, absolutely. So piggybacking on that, um, how do you think architecture can help sort of create diversity in an inclusive world? But on the flip side of that, how do you think it doesn't? How do you think it sort of can stifle? Um, diversity and inclusion. Okay, I think I'll answer your your second question first, because in a way that <laughs> I should have asked that one first. Yes, perfect. <laughs> Which is how does it stifle diversity? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are so many ways that um, architecture does that. In that it, you know, it's always been this um, elite profession, mm -hmm. right? It's a it's a it's a it's a profession that um, certainly um, in in the UK um was uh considered to be um one one that was done by a certain class of um uh individual you know um sort of uh, Aristotle, upper aristotic aristocratic um class and not only that i think that there have been uh, a number of, um, shall we say, vehicles um, employed to ensure that that remains so, mm. um, such as, you know, um, some of the associations around it, such as, I think one of the key ones, which is a very subtle one, the language of architecture, you know, yeah. you know, the language of architecture uh, if you're not within the profession, you know, um, there are there are words and terms and phrases that uh, you won't understand and, you you know, you would you would find difficult to follow. Um, I think um, I, I mean, and even the whole issue of of the wealth around it, um, the fact that buildings, whether they are done, whether they are personal project or they're a corporate or government project, they are the largest spend you ever make, all right? You know, mm -hmm. your home is the biggest spend you ever make if it's Absolutely. your personal property. 
And in business or in the, or in, in the corporate world, if you build an office, it's the biggest expense you ever make. As a government, if you build a, a you know a headquarters, it's the biggest spend you ever make. And so, the fact of the financial um, clout and and gravitas around buildings has meant that, should we say, men especially, and you can go further to say white men, mm-hmm. have made it a point to ensure that they hold that power and that wealth and that ability to spend at that level. Absolutely. I've never thought about it in the terms of the highest thing you spend. I mean, the most spending you would have in any particular way, but it's it's a very interesting way of thinking about it and so true. (laughs) It's a fact. It's a fact. So then on the flip side, but I also think that it can create um used differently it can bring about more inclusive inclusivity and diversity um and and the flip side of that of course is that if you if you take what i said before all of the build you know even till today majority of buildings whether it's domestic or commercial or industrial have been de- designed pr- primarily by one demographic and yet the world is is populated by all people, by everyone. Race, religion, you know, we're 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 a whole melting pot of different things, and so we know. And I think COVID is one of the things that has made that much more sort of apparent. In that is for us to have successful uh, projects. I mean, in other words, projects that allow people to thrive buildings that allow people to thrive within them we have to begin to divide design them for all by all and the only way we can design them for all by all is only if all of us are involved in not just the occupying of these buildings but in the design and the delivery and the execution of these buildings And even if you take out race and religion and all of those other things and just look at the issue of women, women are not a minority. I always say this. Women represent 50% of the world. In fact, we're more than 50% of the world because the men have been killed in wars and all that sort of thing. So women are the highest majority, if you like. And even if we were to take just having women... um, um, taking our own or owning our place in that majority and being able to be that much more involved in in the concept and design and delivery of buildings that would be huge that would Absolutely. be huge because women navigate the world differently from men you know we have safety issues security issues childcare issues flexibility issues, time issues. There are so many things around which women, because we are the caretakers of the family, um, that impact the way in which we use and occupy buildings. And until women take their rightful place as a partner, an equal partner in the design of delivery of buildings, we're not going to see that paradigm shift that needs to take place for architecture to be supremely relevant and also for architecture to take to play its part 
in combating climate change. So beautifully said, thank you. So beautifully said. Um, we were talking about on our last podcast, having a seat at the table with Pinar Harris from our office and how important that is. And I think it speaks to exactly what you just said. You know, if if women don't have the seat at the table if, and then other minorities don't have the seat at the table, how do they represent what should happen in our buildings? You know, and then we immediately having someone else speak for what you need <laughs> is bonkers, for lack of a better term, right? Anytime we have a man speaking for what I might need medically, doesn't work out so well. Anytime we have a man speaking for us in any sort of general term, doesn't work out so well, because like you said, our insight's so different. We just experience the world and have different confines in a very different way as a good thing. So it's absolutely true. If we don't have everyone at the table, then how do we expect our architecture and our built environment to feel like it's inclusive for all? It's such a there's another aspect. Point. There's another aspect I should raise, which I think is extremely important and valuable in that discussion. Yes. And that is whenever you have a situation which is predominantly male, right? Doesn't matter what that is, whether that's a room, an office, a boardroom, <laughs> uh, um, an establishment, the moment you bring in women to that equation, it completely changes the dynamic. It raises the bar because men don't want to be beaten by women. So suddenly there's a competitive element which raises the bar produce and, and means that more comes out of this because of that introduced dynamic. And if you then even take it further from the women coming into the room to other minorities coming into the room, it takes it even further. So the ability to push innovation, productivity, um, um, you know, um, and um, turnover of business suddenly doubles, triples, quadruples because of those introductions. So why wouldn't you do that? It makes oh, it doesn't really. even make business sense not to do that. The fear that if you bring in women mm. or you bring in minorities, they're going to take it all that is so flawed. What it does is it raises the bar in an incredible way. And it does it, it does it naturally. You don't even have to legislate. You just have to, I mean, you just take an, I've had it in my office. I've had just men and that the moment a woman comes in, one, they smarten up straight away. Next day, you're not going to see, you don't have to talk, tell anybody about straightening their tie or coming in with an iron shirt. They will do it automatically. And then when it comes to the work, they immediately want to push harder to ensure that, oh gosh, they stay on top and whatever. How's that not a good thing? Absolutely. I like that term smarten up. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very true. They tidy up, they turn around, they put their head up in a different way. You're paying attention more. You're more aware. You're making better decisions. Oh, it's such a good point. I've never thought of that. Wow. It's such a good point that everybody sort of elevates themselves. Everybody elevates. Everybody elevates. Even yeah. more of a reason. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the AIA, there was a chapter last year I was reading and it was talking about um, how an inclusive environment immediately made the projects more successful. It was just facts. It was just fact-based. This isn't, this isn't just some outwardly crazy topic we're talking about. There's buildings out there that we know are more successful and are more <laughs> in, inviting and have better success in general because they had an inclusive environment working on it and invited that same environment. It you does, know? because everybody brings their best game. Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to do well, you know? 
And, and that pushes all those who work, if you like, the status quo, they go, oh, well, you're not going to come and, you know, <laughs> and stay up. It's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. You know? And I think when I, just now that I'm talking about it, I think that when I, when I started working on real projects uh, in London, uh, and I worked for some of the some of the large commercial firms, and and I would go on site. And of course, when I would go on site in London, I mean there was nobody else there looking like me. They were all men, all white, um, at the table on the on the sites. And when I think about it, I'm sure that in itself also made them step up because they won't want to be told off or you know by me because they 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 want to be able to say oh yeah yeah I know it you know blah, blah, blah. but unfortunately for them or maybe fortunately for them you know I am of Nigerian stock and so we're very confident people you know <laughs> it comes it just comes with the territory and so you know running projects on site and things like that it was just about making sure that we got the best job done right that that was that was what we're there to do and I always used to say that if they don't like how I look, that's their problem. It's not that's my their problem. problem. Absolutely. That's on you. <laughs> that's Hello. on you. But what I'm here to do is to ensure that this building, that this client is delivered in precisely the way that we have designed this to go and uh, to be done, you know, so. Absolutely. Um I love that confidence, the Nigerian confidence comment. I'm like, I can appreciate it. I'm not Nigerian, very obviously, but I'm I'm a Southern woman and I'm Jewish and Italian. And so, right. you know, okay. all those things come into play when I've been on site recently a lot. And like mm. you said, I'm still the only girl <laughs> um, with right. a very, very few other representations. Um, usually it's the client, not yeah. anyone that's in the contractor role. And yeah, I mean, I, I speak with a, a level of confidence that, is I'm just here to get my job done. Whether it bothers you that I'm a woman or not is on you. You know, mm -hmm. I'm just here to do my job and I appreciate that. And we need more, more women like you. You're wonderful. Um, this is just, you're wonderful. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your affordable housing project? Um, I was reading a little bit about that in your bio and I saw the number that sort of just jarred me about the 25 million housing deficit. In Nigeria, in that, yeah. Yeah, in Nigeria, so number it, I just wrote it in my notes it just struck me and I needed to hear more <laughs> well this is something that's been in the making for a few years and um I had a period back in Nigeria from 2011 to 12 to end of 2010 to 2017 I came back when my father passed away but um and when I was there during that time I went when there was a bit of a slump here in the UK and things were were a bit more buoyant over there and I you know got some projects under my belt so um I decided to go and set up there as as well and start working on projects there and when I was working there you know I was very aware of the disparity this you know um the social disparity and deprivation that that exists um there's only a small percentage of Nigerians that hold the, the wealth of the country um, but the vast majority, you know, do live, you know, in um, uh, poverty, really. Um, and um, and when I came away, I came away thinking that what I um, wanted to do um, was to, um, first of all, to use what was most valuable in the knowledge and experience that I have, which is... Um, you know, I have networks both from both both in in Britain and in in Nigeria, 
And I thought, well, what could I do? What would be the thing, the one thing that one could do that would help to alleviate poverty um, in Nigeria? And initially I thought thing that would really make a difference was affordable housing. And the reason that affordable housing was with is 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 critical because once you have with anyone, once you have a decent home, then you alleviate so many issues that are that arise out of not having a home, such as health, you know, such as the ability to, you know, for education. If you've got um a decent home where you've got good dry shelter, you've got clean running water, you've got power, you know, you can. There are so many things that that immediately in that environment um, dispels because suddenly the, the health issues that are as a result of poor accommodation and so on, all of those will disappear. And so, but then I thought to myself, there's been a lot of businesses have gone to Nigeria to, to, to do affordable housing, but the affordable housing that they do is affordable mainly if you live abroad and you've got dollars and pounds to spend. In other words, it'll be a hundred thousand pound home, say for example, which is completely unaffordable and unattainable out there because out there it's about like 80 million Naira, which is equivalent to you having to spend millions of pounds on a property in the UK, which is unaffordable for most people. Wow. Right. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and so, I decided that what we needed to do was to target delivering half a million homes in five years. And the reason that we wanted to, that uh, that, that number was important was because if you're thinking in that scale of delivery, you have to think differently about how you, you, you produce those buildings. How are right? they built? Yeah, how they're built. Because if you're thinking half a million uh, in five years, that's a hundred thousand homes in a year, and that's 8,000 homes in a month. So business as usual cannot apply in that situation. And it meant that we would therefore have to innovate. It was going to have to be, it meant that it's really important that these homes are actually affordable. In other words, they are for an ordinary Nigerian to buy, that an ordinary Nigerian living in Nigeria can aspire to owning their own home. And so um, it took some time before we found the right partners to work with us on the, work with this on the on this project. We set up an entity in the UK and a subsidiary in Nigeria, and we finally found uh, the right entity to help us fund the project. Um, and that is a part government-owned um, mortgage company. Because what became apparent that was is the challenge to mass affordable housing not taking off in Nigeria is the absence of a mature and sustainable housing finance market. You have to be able to provide money cheaply to a developer and to buyers in order for mass affordable housing to work. And because the mortgage market is in its infancy and not properly developed, this is the reason that, you know, is one of the key levers as to why that hasn't happened. And so um, part of, you know, you know, part of the solution to this problem is providing a housing solution that is totally locally procured, but that also, because that is what will keep the cost down. If you have any importation elements to that, it will completely 
uh, you know, um, obliterate, you know, blow up the cost. Um, and also that these homes would have to be um, funded and financed by affordable mortgages and by affordable loans to the developer so that the overall cost vehicle of the house is affordable to the Nigerian. So we finally, I finally found the, a partner, which was a part government-owned mortgage company, who was not only ready to um, fund the, um, the project, but also to provide the mortgages to the buyers. And the other aspect of this is that we're not just de delivering half a million homes. The concept is to deliver them in villages of 500 homes per village. So that the idea is that you're not just building these homes, it's about reconstructing, bring, bringing back a social context around, you know, the social context around, um, you know, taking care of oneself in a village. And each, each village must have uh, you know, like a, a bank, a market, a shop, a church, a mosque, you know, a, a square, so that each is self-contained and that they would all be complete, completely sustainable, whether on or off grid. So in other words, with things like renewable energy, recycling grey water, solar power. So each of the homes in these in these villages can be operated fully serviced without being on the, on, on a, a power grid. Um, but at the same time, each village can be connected to a power grid as and whenever um, that those grids apply, uh, you know, um, become available. Um, and, and we're at the moment, we're on the, uh, just about to start building the first two prototypes. Um, one of the tasks we were given by the client was to um, come up with a solution that almost eliminated concrete. Um, because it was scarcely available and expensive. Mm -hmm. It's also not a very sustainable material. And we have come up with a solution for that. And so I'm quite excited that we are um, at the point of building these, um, the first prototypes. And after once we've built those and, you know, been able to iron out what the issues around the delivery of those, then we'll build the first village, um, first of 250 homes. And the idea is to be able to build a pilot village in every state. And this particular client already has land banks and are prepared to give us the land as well um, for the first prototypes. And then the we'll put together a development appraisal for, for the whole of the first village. So it's, 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 it has so many aspects to it, which are really important because it's also part of it is also about recycling. Um, one of the things that we're going to be bringing into this is being able to have, um, um, so we say kickstart a um, secondary um, recycling component of building locally so that, you know, so that that will be like a initiative um, initiation to in my view the start of manufacturing for local manufacturing industries we're going to have to need to um, restore um, uh, to get, we're using more timber in the building so reforestation is going to be really important you know so that we're not only so with for every tree you take down you know you hopefully build 20 or whatever it is but there are so many um, elements. It's also about we want to be working with the universities because we need to to create a new crop of, you know, local architects and engineers who are working in this in this system. Um, and so we, we want to drive that because Nigeria, for example, has only four thousand, you know, qualified architects. Britain, which is 
a third of the size has uh, 27,000 or 28,000, you know, so we need to increase that. So there are many aspects that this one, you know, aspect project does. And it also, I believe, will, will encourage the return of Nigerians in the diaspora, because if they can aspire to own a home as well and be able to be part and parcel of being able to, of being able to do that, many would return if they could make if they were if they could find that they could live a decent life without having to be a, a millionaire or a billionaire in order to have you know just you know to be able to enjoy a, a decent level of, of living so it's it's something that's very very close to my heart and that i just feel is is so doable so important and and would be really is it will be really transformational for the country. And it's a model that can be applied in other places. You know, we chose when we set this up, you know, my colleagues here in the UK said, well, you know, Annette, this is a global issue. I said, yeah, but so what we so we set this up on the basis that, well, we're starting this, you know, in Nigeria, but it's something that could be applied in other, you know, uh, in other countries as well, you know, places like Syria, which are having problems and India, or, you know, that, you know, where you, the, the principle is that you must use the climate and the you know your 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 local conditions to come up with solutions that are relevant for your you know um your environment um and right. that will every environment might not be the same but you approach the let's say issues are con confines the same That's, right uh, exactly exactly so did you i mean i we could use a whole podcast just to talk about this <laughs> i mean um i have so many questions but uh did you think when you were going down this avenue that it would sort of unweave these like layers and layers and layers um, to this project. I mean, obviously I, I feel like you knew it was complex, but did you know that it would start to sort of unwind all these other pieces? I mean, I wrote down even the fact that, you know, you can make an affordable home, but if they have no loan to be able to buy it, then, or a mortgage to be able to buy it, doesn't matter, right? So then yeah. all these pieces show up. Um, did well, you have I any idea? Initially I knew there was, that they, that I I I think that I might not have known what what the um what we would uncover, but I knew that there was a that um there was a complexity here um that we needed to unravel, and certainly it's some one of the things that I think is um I've realized is one of my skills, which is to be able to look at a complex problem and be able to um dissect it and 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 reduce it to simple activities that can take place to be able to solve that complexity right because i mean anybody else looking at this could be overwhelmed and be like well, this is this is too much you yeah. know and yeah. understanding to be able to break it down is quite a a feat yeah no it is but i think you know i think i get that from my father because he mm -hmm. he he um he was an amazing engineer my mother used to say with the heart of an architect because he he built um the three main ports in nigeria at a very young age he was uh the the the, the nigerian port authority manager and there are three huge ports which he was um he foresaw and um the building of and delivery of um but i but i have realized that that is something that i may and i think maybe that i do get that from him but it is about, you know, and I think as architects, that's what we are. You know, we we see the problems, you know, they don't teach you that in school. No. <laughs> two things that I've that, that I've learned about architecture. One is that we are problem solvers. I mean, Absolutely. that's what we need to do. 
But the other that I always tell my students at Mercy University is that we spend other people's money. That's what <laughs> I'm saying. All right. I'm um, very good at spending other people's money. Great at it. <laughs> that's what, you know. And so when it comes to spending other people's money, what I tell my students is that what you have to remember is if you put the shoe on the other foot and you wanted somebody else to spend your money, who would you give your money to? You would give the money to someone who you felt confident about the way in which they, you know, they carry themselves and they, the way in which they deliver and would look at your, 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 your challenge. So a lot of architecture is about engaging the confidence of, um, you know, your client, your, um, team your design that team. trust is such a big well, part of that it's huge it's huge because the moment you have that everything else follows but I'm, without I'm so that true. you cannot get anything else and so that which is why it's really important that we are able to demonstrate um which is why role models are hugely important for all the different demographics because until you see someone doing something i mean you know that's that phrase you can't be what you can't see so until you see someone doing something which you didn't think you could do is when you are inspired to believe well oh yeah i could do that you know that person looks like me they're in a different place but they're doing it i can do that so it's you know architecture confidence architecture they go i mean i suppose it applies to other fields but more so in architecture because there's such big stakes involved always you know which is what it goes back to what i was saying initially whether it's your private home you're building or a major government edifice or a commercial office big stakes involved so you want to know that the person who is holding those stakes for you has the kahunas and the, you know, to be able to do it, to be able to command, you know, the um, attention of the, those hundreds, sometimes thousands of people, you know, on a project and engage them, you know, to the point that they will take this project and get it to the end. Because as we know, the beginning in projects is exciting. The end is exciting, mm -hmm. but the bit in the middle <laughs> is the big pain, right? Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, it's the important part to get us to that end, but not as exciting. But also when it's, like you said, crucial to keep that confidence from the client, you know, let them know, hey, we might not be talking as much, not, it might not be seeing a presentation as often of the design, but everything's being handled, you know, that That's you can it. trust us, you can have confidence in us. Very yeah. true. We're covering your back. We're making sure that, you know, everything. And, you know, that's why, our, our you know, the delivery of architecture is so highly documented more and more these days, you know, um, because of the way. But relationships are all things that will prevent anything and everything going wrong. You talked about sort of having a mentor and and relationships. And it, it's funny because having you on as um, sort of a third episode of this podcast, um, if not by accident, but also on purpose, the, the overwhelming theme has always sort of been these relationships. And um, whether it's relationships with your client or relationships with your colleagues or relationships with someone that you look up to as a mentor, um, 
it seems to be a theme, which I, I love and I appreciate because um, even how you, you yourself treat people and talk about treating people and talk about treating people you work with, your consultants or clients or anyone around you, um, it really does make a difference in the product and the type of architecture and the type of world we create. So I was just wondering, is there someone in particular that um, other than your father, which I love you leaning on, um, that sort of gave you um, some advice uh, as a woman in our profession or just in our profession in general? And is there some advice you would give to women that are looking to sort of start out in our profession, the young ones coming in? Okay, I think I'll start from the young ones coming in. Uh, I'll tell you what I tell my students. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, you know, because I'm a part-time professional tutor at Westminster Universities for the part three course. So I'm always, you know, um, I have the, um, the, the young architects, the ones who are just about to become architects. Um, so invariably they're working on a thesis, you know, their final project, you know, a live project in their office, which they're going to use for their thesis. And so what I tell them, because they also, they have to do two things. They have to do a career appraisal and they have to do their, a report on their project. And what I say to them with their career appraisal, I said, you know, as a woman, you can have it all, right? But you can only have it all if you plan for it, all right? You're young, you know, when there's because these are girls maybe in their 20s, maybe late 20s, some maybe early 30s. And my advice to them is always that, you know, if you 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 have to you have to realize that even if you are not looking at yourself as someone who will at some point have a family, I can assure you your employers are. All right. And so your employers are looking at you, might be 28 to 29. You may or may not be dating. You may or may not be in a relationship, but they're looking at you and thinking, huh, two, three years, we know she's going to be, you know, dealing with a family and so on. And they will give you a project that will last for that period of time, for that two, three years, knowing fully well at that point, either you might leave, either they may have to sideline you because you're expecting a child or, you know, or whatever. I said, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? If you have made a plan for your future, that is, you have decided, for example, I often say, you know, if you're going into this profession, get as senior as you can as quickly as possible, because then you can dictate what happens when you become, decide to have a family. So you want to become an associate or a partner or a director, you know, in your 30s, if you can do it, right? Get there quick, do what you have to do to get there as quick as you can so that you can make, you can be part and parcel of the decisions that are made when it comes time for you to have a family. Because I always say to people, having a family, I don't know why we've treated as if it's a surprise. Why is it a surprise? <laughs> we don't, a surprise. You know, Women have been doing this for millions or thousands yeah. and thousands of years. Still shocking somehow to some yeah. people. Somehow, you know, somebody's going, oh, you know. Oh, so wow. Right? Babies. So, I forgot the babies still happen. Wow. So... Plan for that, you know, even if you're, if you don't get to that, then decide that you're going to do a job share, come up with some sort of solution. So when that employer sits you down and says, oh, you're expecting da, 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 what are you going, you now tell them, well, I've decided this is what I've thought of. I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and they'll be going, oh, wow, you know, she's already, you know, and they will take, they'll lap it up because, you know, this is someone who's come to them with a solution 
for what this means so that they can have continuity in their profession, you know? But don't be there as a young girl thinking, oh, I'm just like the guys, we're all the same, you know? And, and then baby hits, but they're, you're the one with the stomach and they're the one, you know, that they, they're the Continuing. one- Continuing. Yeah, and they'll give the job that was gonna be yours, you know, because you're now pregnant, that that now is given to some other young guy for him to continue his career and move forward. That doesn't have to happen. Because also, I also say when you're pregnant, you're you're pregnant, you're not sick. You're just pregnant. <laughs> you know, again, it's, you know, because I worked, you know, right until I gave birth to my daughter. So, so my words to a young woman coming in is you want to try and get as flexible a work environment as you can. You want to plan. You want to have your three-year, five-year, ten-year plan for your career before you go into it, you know, so that you are prepared for everything that is going to happen and you have planned for it and you know that when this happens, this is what I'm going to do. When this happens, this is what I'm going to do. And your employer is aware as well. And I can assure you, if they see that you have this plan, I mean, they'll respect you for it and they will go along with what you have set up. So that would be what I would be saying too. And I would also say, don't be afraid to go into this profession. It is a wonderful, it, it's the one of the few professions where you you build something that you create. You actually create something physical. And it's the most wonderful feeling of joy when you finish a project and you think, wow, I did that, you know. Um, and so, so that would be that. In terms of my role models, well, there were very few role models that looked like me when I was um, going, starting in architecture yeah frank you know but frank lloyd wright was definitely you know his work um you know with nature and architecture was one of the things that always really inspired me in terms of you know the kind of architecture that i'd like to be you know um doing and yes he's a white male architecture but he was he was just one of those special i think um specially talented people that just knew how to in fact if you think about it he was doing sustainability long before we had a name for it absolutely absolutely in terms, right in terms of the way he he designs um and then the other really you know and I know it comes but you know you talk about fan but my mother um is a is huge role model for me because she as I told you she was a nurse initially and then she went back to university when we went in secondary school and she studied to be a lawyer and she was um, qualified as a lawyer and she has been in one for the past, what, almost 40 years. I mean, she'd be 90 wow. in May, you know, um, and Beatrice Fisher is her name. And she has been, she is one of the strongest people I know. And I know that, you know, everything that um, I do as a woman, I know, um, stems from from the example that she has set in my life as a woman yeah you know she's never let anything stop her from I, I love that achieving yeah I love that I'm the same I feel the same about my mom has taught me everything I know as far as being an independent woman and believing in yourself and I will hold that dear to my heart until she's 90 because I I'm just so appreciative. I think that I'm, I definitely am the person I am today and feel confident enough to do what I do because of my mom. Um, so this is crazy. I will put this out there because most people know you had no idea you were talking to me during that entire part, but I was listening all of it and like very diligently, I am pregnant. So I'm expecting, and oh, wow. it was such oh, okay. an honor to hear you, to hear you talk about that in such a way that you did, because you know, 
I'm thinking about these things as if I'm planning, but I have no idea what I'm doing as far as what it means to be a mom. But I do know that I want to, you know, I told my people at my office and I try to plan out exactly what you were saying. And hopefully I'm going to be doing it in a way that you're saying, which is to make sure that I'm setting up these sort of um, pathways for myself that when I walk out, it's not just somebody else filling in my spot and I'm forgotten, right? That I've, I've made myself um, needed and they understand my place. And so that one day when I, very soon when I'm a mom, um, it's just another step in the road. It's not a bump. It's not a skip. It's not a any anything that is going to stop what my career path should have been in the first place. Now it's just it shouldn't and you do have you know believe that you have that control of it you know um because when mm -hmm. i gave when i had my it's funny when i had my daughter i was i i stayed on working freelance with a firm that i'd been you know i'd built my career with you know and i would go to meetings with her strapped on my you know strapped to me you know we go to me i go to the meeting with her and um we you know they brief me and then i go away and work on whatever it was and then i'd come back but make it your own. Don't let it be a uh, necessarily a break. It doesn't have to be a because if you are fulfilled as a woman, right, you will be a better mother, right. Um, you don't want to feel that oh your child has you know as is the reason why you didn't you know. I think it's really important that women should be able to stay in architecture regardless of having a family or not, because it's always at that point, always at that point that either they now leave a firm and have to go and work on their own and then they go into the domestic architecture field for a while and, you know, and, 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 that, and they get stuck there, you know? Um, and there's no reason why you can't have a number two working with you that you can direct. I mean, I don't understand the logic of losing all that knowledge and and and, and experience that you have built right. up over this period of time that is now just going to sit in a room with your child when you could be you don't have to be physically there for everything. You know, you could be um, directing a team that is working for, working for you whilst you are in that maternity role. They don't have to lose all of your skill in that time, for example, you know, because that's always the issue, the money side of it. They could be paying you fully and you stay working on your projects with a team that is that is assigned to you and that you have regular meetings. We haven't, we now know Zoom. I think it's really important women stay engaged. Stay I appreciate involved, the passion. You have no idea. <laughs> Do you feel like there's a place or a time or do you do this for yourself where you feel like your work has been done? Do you sort of take a step back and remind yourself of the successes or the things that have gone right? Do you? How do you feel like you'll be able to sort of step away and feel like what, you know, your work is done or will you ever? <laughs> well, that's a hard one. <laughs> it's not that hard. I, I think that I will always work to some, in some capacity or another because I think I, I yeah. get a out of that seems like but I want to be in a situation I like where that. I work because I want to not because I have to there's a difference um and uh definitely the, the some of the initiatives that I've put in place they're all about they, they all have a common thread in that they're all about either promoting women women or being transformational in some way or form and my aspiration now um in the next shall we say five to 10 years, is that, is that I want those businesses to have 
uh, grown to the capacity where they are employing, I would like to see hundreds of people being employed by those businesses, and that they are, um, and but they are uh, employing people of color, women in um, uh, uh, um, in in construction, you know, doing projects, but doing projects that traditionally people wouldn't expect us to be doing, right? In other words, larger scale projects, um, the um, uh, the mass affordable housing. I have in our vision, you know, a, a a major women's project that we'd like to do. But I want these businesses to be thriving and and bringing it. I want to use them to bring you know other young people, other young aspirants into the profession, give them those opportunities. And hopefully by the time that that is happening, I will be able to step back as a chair or in some capacity like that and just be able to give more of the direction, advice, mentorship at that point. But I do, my my aspirations now are to see these um, entities um, um, uh, grow and become, become major players in this field because I, I just want to blow the paradigm mindset about what women can. <laughs> I love it. Blow it all up in the best kind of way. <laughs> and the only way you do that is by doing it right. You know, and by bringing people, the people together to help you execute on that. Um, and the benefit that I have now, because I consider myself now at my most powerful um, because I've got, you know, this wealth of experience behind me, my networks on both sides of the continent are in positions of power, whether governors, directors, or, you know, and so, and that, that has a short window. It doesn't last forever. It'll last for about maybe another five to seven years. And so in that time, I have to use those influences and that power to engage the next generation coming through in such a way that they become unstoppable it's exciting to watch how much you can see that you've grown into this position and earned mm -hmm. this position. And, um, you know, I think that it's really an inspiration for women, young women like me in my thirties that I, I can hopefully one day, maybe not be in Annette, but be close to an Annette and be a Jeanette. Well, version you'll, of be, a Jeanette you'll be the um, best version aspiring of you. To that. You will be the best version of Jeanette. Exactly. That's what, you know, that's what you must aspire to. You yes. know, I can inspire you, but I hope exactly. that I inspire you to be the best version of you because that's what is unique. You know, Absolutely. that's what I say to each of Absolutely. my students. You you bring, you know, everything that you have ever done brought you to this point now. And it all matters, good and bad, both. So never regret all something lesson. that didn't go work, that didn't work because it taught you something. You know, and Absolutely. it's the things that don't work that teach us the most. I can't thank you enough. This has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. I thank you yeah. for the invitation. I really do appreciate you.